Thank you for tuning in to this installment of the Movie Geeks United Anniversary Series. On this episode, we celebrate the 35th anniversary of the hit film Gremlins. The guest is director Joe Dante. This interview was conducted in 2009 by Aaron Diaz and our sibling podcast, Back by Midnight. Steven Spielberg presents Gremlins. Billy Pelser has a nice home. Billy, is that you? Yeah, Mom, it's me. A nice job. A nice girl. If you're not doing anything this Thursday night, maybe you'd like to uh, go out on a date with me? I'd love to. And loving parents who are about to give him... You're gonna like this. No, 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 don't shake it. We're gonna have to open it now. We'll wait till Christmas. The most unusual gift... <laughs> He ever got. What is it? No. It's your new pet. Come on, Barney, be a good dog. My dad gave it to me. But there are a few things to keep in mind. If you expose it to the light, you may hurt it. If you get it wet, it will multiply. All that from water? They got wet? Yeah, plain water. And most important, no matter how much they beg, never, never let them eat after midnight. Because when they do, they change. They become clever. Mischievous. What's going on here? And dangerous. Gremlins, huh? Little monsters. Right. Hundreds of them. Well, I, I don't know, maybe thousands. They've been here too. Billy, what are these things? Where do they come from? Look, I know it sounds crazy, I know. But in a few hours, you're gonna have a major disaster on your hands. Gremlins, directed by Joe Dante. They'll be expecting you. Also opening on the same day as Ghostbusters was another iconic summer of 84 movie. Basically, uh, actually an iconic film of that of the whole year. That's Joe Dante's Gremlin, kind of a It's a Wonderful Life meets Invasion of the Body Snatchers, crossed with uh, just a little bit of Alien. And Joe Dante, just a terrific deconstructionist of genre filmmaker who had previously done genre exercises in Piranha and The Howling, but finally got something a, a little with a little bigger budget, but also got the support of Steven Spielberg, who gave him his blessing by producing Gremlins, and, just, and what turned out to be kind of a polarizing film, and also a key film in creating the PG-13 rating. We talk about all of this, and also in, in another pre-recorded interview. So here is my interview with filmmaker Joe Dante. Well, I uh, <clears throat> probably was one of those kids whose first movie was a Disney movie, because I had some aunts who used to take me to the movies, and I'm sure that uh, around that period, there's uh, either Snow White or Peter Pan. Um, but the movies that really sort of resonated with me were the ones that I went to by myself uh, at Saturday matinees in a theater that was uh, only a few blocks from my house. And uh, there, it, was a, it was quite a ritual. It was uh, On Saturday, there would be uh, two features and ten cartoons. Uh, first boy and first girl in line get in free, so you would start lining up quite early. Uh, it was only a quarter to get in. And when you, once you were in, you spent 
maybe half the movie looking for change on the floor so you could buy popcorn or candy. And uh, during that period, the early 50s, um, they used to run a lot of uh, older pictures, uh, a lot of Tarzans, a lot of westerns and stuff, but they also were running a lot of science fiction films. And uh, I do remember It Came From Outer Space uh, made a tremendous impression on me, uh, partly because it was in 3D, but also because it was uh, bigger and more spectacular than any of the other movies that I was seeing. Mm-hmm. And when the, and if I if I have it correctly, you uh, your parents were kind of athletes. They were golfers, am I correct? Well, my mother was not. My father was a golf pro, and mm-hmm. uh, he was a teaching pro. He mm-hmm. he had the choice to either go on the golfing circuit, which is kind of dangerous to do when you have a family, or to just sort of take a teaching job. And so he moved from country club to country club, and we would move with him. And so, uh, but. You didn't go into athletics. You went into more. Uh, no, I, to 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 my father's probable everlasting disappointment, I did not become a golfer because <laughs> I really wasn't that good at it. And uh, you know, when you're the son of the pro, you want to look like you're <laughs> pretty good. It's a sort mm-hmm. of an advertising gimmick. And so I, uh, my 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 interests were not uh, in the sports area. So, and so you were into to to drawing and art. You went to the Philadelphia. College of Art. Right. I think one of the reasons that I, I pursued the drawing so strongly was because I had polio for a year when I was about seven, mm-hmm. and I missed third grade. Uh, and uh, so I spent most of my time in bed drawing. Mm-hmm. And I created comic strips. I created uh, little stories and continuing characters, and you know the whole thing. I was sort of doing movie scripts even then. And so at that time, did you? Was it the goal to be a filmmaker, or to be an animator? Or? No, my, I, I, the, the goal of filmmaking was far, far away because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the kids at that age think that the movies mm-hmm. just happen. They don't even think they're written or mm-hmm. directed. They think the actors make up the lines, and, and you, know, you don't get too sophisticated about that until you're maybe seven or eight or nine. Uh, but I never. It was uh, one day I went to a movie and I counted the shots in the movie and I got lost after like 150 and I thought, well, this is impossible. I, it's not a job I could ever do. It's too hard. Uh, so I was going to be a cartoonist. That's one of the mm-hmm. I went to the College of Art. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, and one, one thing I want to talk about real quickly, just because I always find it fascinating when uh, filmmakers or screenwriters were film critics first before going into filmmaking. And mm-hmm. after you got out of college, you were a, a film critic. Am I, not, am I correct? Well, it I depends on what you mean by the word critic. I was a film reviewer. I right. worked for a magazine called Film Bulletin, which is a trade magazine, which was ostensibly written for exhibitors. And uh, I took it upon myself to try to uh, rec- do reviews for the record of uh, all the obscure movies that opened that nobody ever reviewed. <laughs> all the foreign imports and strange, you know, low-budget horror films and, and uh, exploitation pictures that uh, nobody ever really wrote about seriously. And um, I was, uh, a series of them were reprinted in a magazine called Video Watchdog, and uh, of course I had to reread them, and I, I, was, I was shocked at how hard I was on the movies that I reviewed. And, and now, that, looking back from the viewpoint of a filmmaker uh, and realizing how difficult it is to make any movie, let alone a good one, um, if I had to write those reviews today, I'm sure I would have written them much differently. Uh, do you read reviews of your film? Um, you try not to, but you know you always end up review- reading them. And uh, there's, uh, I've been, I've been kind of lucky because some 
generally I've been pretty well treated by critics, although every so often I'll have a picture that gets such terrible reviews that you do sort of wonder, well, what was I thinking? Um, but then the odd thing about reviews is that they're so um, of the moment. And, you know, when we look back at some of the movies that we all love the most, and you look at the reviews, they really weren't all that enthusiastic. Um, it, it, the way a movie impacts its own time isn't necessarily a measure of how good the movie will be in a number of years after that. Right. So I, I, some of the pictures that... Uh, I, I made a picture called The Burbs with Tom Hanks, which um, got terrible reviews. I mean, there was, there was one good review. All the rest of them were bad. And uh, oddly enough, it's become this sort of cult favorite, and people... Uh, have websites devoted to it, and they quote the dialogue, and um, they play the characters. And one one guy did a, 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 a homage on the internet where he, he just took some took his next door neighbor and his father or whatever and went out and shot a couple of scenes from the movie with the same script. Hmm. Um, so it's you never really know. I mean, you can't really go by by uh, reviews because they're they're really only the the thought of the moment, and sometimes movies have a life beyond us. Mm-hmm. And and. And just as a postscript, do you have any opinion one way or the other of the kind of uh, flourishing of not only online criticism, but online kind of, uh, you know, what they quote-unquote movie geek websites and how that kind of... Well, it's it's all it's all gone online, hasn't it? I mean, you know, you look at all the major newspapers, and uh, they're either folding or they've gotten rid of their critics, and that does that goes for book critics and film critics, and you know that kind of uh, introspection doesn't seem to be very popular right now. And part of it is is due to the fact that over the years, so many spoilers have been written in reviews that people uh, feel that they don't want to read a review before they see the movie because it's going to spoil it for them. And then after they see the movie, they've already seen it, so they don't feel the need to read the review. And uh, it, it, the, the Internet has really become the repository for people who want to revisit a movie and, and you know, talk about, you know, its inner meanings or, or you know, talk about it in detail. And it used to be that was the province of the film magazines, you know, American mm-hmm. Film and uh, Take One. And many, when I was, you know, just got into the business in the early 70s, there were many, many films, magazines like that. And uh, now there's, you know, Sight and Sound in England, and there's Film Comment here, and that's about it. And they um, they all tend to be rather highfalutin, mm-hmm. uh, and they don't really give that much attention to the average picture. Right. Well, in the... So in the in the 70s, uh, I, I believe a, a friend of yours from college was working for Roger Corman, New World Pictures, and uh, suggested you move out there to to work for Roger Corman. And what was yeah, my, I was uh, I had just gotten married and my mother was dying, and uh, it was one of those upheaval moments where uh, my father said, you know, your mother would want you to go out and try to you know take advantage of this opportunity. So uh, I did come out here, and um, that was in 1974, and uh, a year later, I was directing a movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, that's not, I don't think, something that probably could happen these days. But then, uh, Roger was making films for drive-ins. There was a tremendous market, not just his company, but others, where they were making a lot of low-budget, non-union films to fill up the drive-ins. And... Uh, it was a terrific time to be able to get into the movie business on a, a sort of a the under level, um, and then every so often there would be an opening in the unions if you had done enough pictures or done enough films as an editor or whatever. You then you could you could you could be brought into the union, and uh, every so it would open up maybe once a year or something like that, and uh, you could eventually take advantage of that. 
but those those ways are all gone now. They're, they're, none of that none of that exists anymore. You can't come out to Hollywood and expect that you'll be directing a movie in a year. Yeah. And what and and going through that Roger Corman school of filmmaking uh, for about four four or five years that you were part of that. What what did you what did you learn from that that you have taken that has translated into what you you know your your studio films and, and beyond. Well, at, at, at Corman's, the budgets were so low that they virtually dared you to make a film. And so uh, you had to learn a number of tricks to be able to get the work done on time. And uh, those were tricks that you don't forget. And when you end up on a big studio film where uh, the pressures are the same, there's just more time involved. Um, you find, I find, that uh, I often will go back to um, uh, techniques that I learned from Roger about setting up a scene and trying to reduce the number of reverses to do and relights and, and uh, a way to use the track so that you don't have to lay it twice. and it, it, All these little sort of economy tricks um, mm-hmm. that uh, that you pick up are, are very useful. And if you notice, you know, a lot of people who went through the Corman School um, have ended up with uh, creditable careers because they um, are able to make films on time and to be efficient because they know how to do it. Right. And... Uh I guess now we should probably get to, to Gremlins. Gremlins came at a time you you had a uh, you done you'd gone to the Corman School and then you had directed a couple of films that were that were hits, uh, Piranha and The Howling. And so how did uh, and then you did your segment uh, for Twilight Zone segment three. Uh, and so how did uh, Gremlins uh, come to you? Well, after I did The Howling, I didn't work for quite a while because the company went out of business. And I was developing another film for them called Meltdown, and uh, they suddenly went belly up, and nobody got paid, and it was a fairly bleak time. Uh, I was bar- I was contemplating borrowing money from my father, which is you know something that you just don't want to do after you've made a couple of movies. Um, and uh, in the mail comes this script um, from Steven Spielberg for Gremlins, and it turns out that he had seen Piranha and the Howling, and uh, he wanted to make a low-budget horror film in Oregon at the Osmond Studios, uh, non-union, and um, I started talking to him about doing that, and during the discussions of that picture, the Twilight Zone movie came up, so I, you know, started to work on the Twilight Zone movie while developing Gremlins, and eventually, uh, it, uh, in order to make the film, Warner, uh, Spielberg needed to go to Warner Brothers to get some more money, because it was obviously not going to be able to be done quite as cheaply as had been hoped, and um, I, it ended up as a studio picture. Um, and I uh, was, you know, very lucky to have been able to have been there. Um, and uh, it was uh, a movie that was made for $11 million, which was quite cheap at the time for that kind of film. Uh, and it was a, um, a surprise hit. Mm-hmm. Certainly no one expected it to be uh, a, a big hit. And um, it sort of put me on the map. I got my picture in Time magazine. Well, let's talk, let's talk about when you read that. I mean, Spielberg sent you that that script, so he must. I guess he thought that something about that script would match up with your uh, sensibilities. I I don't know if it was necessarily a question of sensibilities or a question of my ability to make a, a cheap film. Um, <laughs> he had seen he had seen Piranha earlier, and uh, Universal, which you know, Piranha was a rip off of Jaws that I made for Corman, and uh, we did it. Uh, around the time that Jaws 2 was going to come out. And um, Universal was not amused that this cheap uh, rubber fish movie was going to come out to compete with their rather expensive sequel. And so they 
considered enjoining the film and trying to keep it from being released. And so they apparently showed it to, to uh, Steven Spielberg, who said, you guys don't get it, this is a parody. Uh, this isn't like a rip-off, it's, although it was a rip-off. Uh, and he managed to get them to uh, cease and desist, which meant that looking back on it, if he hadn't um, <laughs> intervened, uh, that movie might not have come out and I might not have had a career. <laughs> so uh, he was familiar with me uh, in that sense. Right. Well, and so you read the Gremlin script, and it's, uh, from what I understand, Columbus's original script was, uh, was darker and more horror-oriented. Well, it was. Uh, Chris wrote the script as a writing sample. Uh, mm-hmm. He it, it was not considered something that would probably get produced, and so he just threw it in the kitchen sink. And um, and when when Spielberg read it, he he. He, he liked it and wanted to make a movie out of it, but it was um, a, a, more of a horror movie. I mean, it was the, the, the gremlins uh, cut the mom's head off and bounced it down the stairs, and they, they ate the dog, and they did some very very grim things, although there was an element of fun to it. So uh, <laughs> while we were making it, we realized once we saw the gremlins and put them in human clothes and had them walking around and doing these things, it was that the movie was obviously going to be much more entertaining if we sort of made more of that. And so as the picture was in production, it started to become more of a comedy. Mm-hmm. And when Spielberg saw the picture uh, finished, I remember him, I was sitting a couple of rows behind him in the theater, and he was like he was putting his forehead to his head, <laughs> sort of like, oh, no, what has he done? Um, and and it, 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 it's, a, it's kind of an interesting thing because it, it was a movie that nobody really got. The studio didn't really understand it until we had ran it for an audience. And mm-hmm. at the time, the um, the practice uh, at, at Spielberg's place was to finish the movie before you ran it for an audience. You didn't run a rough cut. You didn't run a, a print with splices and scratches and temporary music. You just finished the movie. And then if they wanted to make changes, they would make them then. So we managed to finish the entire picture, and so we had a screening uh, in San Diego, I think, and the reaction was uh, the kind of reaction that every director is lucky to have once in his career, at least, where the audience was literally on the ceiling, and it was completely unexpected, and they thought it was hilarious and great, and they gave it terrific scores, and all of a sudden, Warner Brothers figured, well, gosh, somehow we have a hit on our hands that we didn't expect. I guess mm-hmm. we better crank up that merchandising. Steven Spielberg presents Gremlins. Billy Pelser has a nice home. Billy, is that you? Yeah, Ma, it's me. A nice job. A nice girl. If you're not doing anything this Thursday night, maybe you'd like to uh, go out on a date with me? I'd love to. And loving parents who were about to give him... You're going to like this. No, 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 don't shake it. We're going to have to open it now. We'll wait till Christmas. The most unusual gift he ever got. What is it? No. It's your new pet. Come on, Bonnie, be a good dog. My dad gave it to me. But there are a few things to keep in mind. If you expose it to the light, you may hurt it. If you get it wet, it will multiply. All that from water? They got wet? No, plain water. And most important, no matter how much they beg, never, never let them eat after midnight. Because when they do, they change. How many permutations did the Mogwais and then the Gremlins go through to get to that final design? Well, the... Um 
the actual gremlin design was is pretty much like a, a picture that um, Chris Columbus wrote and, and put into the script. He actually had a, a drawing, a gargoyle-like creature that was quite similar to the final gremlin. But the other gremlin, Gizmo, uh, who's a cute one, um, went through a number of permutations. At one point, he even looked like Peter Ustinov. I remember he was just this sort of roly-poly, hairy bear. I mean, he looked kind of like an Ewok. Uh, before they were Ewoks, I guess. Or maybe was it before they were Ewoks? I can't remember. Um, anyway, uh, Stephen kept turning down the designs, and we were getting close to you know the point where of no return, where we were going to have to start producing these things. And uh, so we got the idea of making the uh, Mogwai the same color as Stephen's Cocker Spaniel. And when we did that, suddenly he he approved the design, <laughs> so we were able to go ahead and make them. What was the most logistically arduous uh, sequence to do in Gremlins? Well, anything involving the puppets was arduous. Um, The movie was shot in two sections. It was shot in the section with with the actors and (laughs) as minimal puppetry as we could get away with. And then there was another shoot a couple of months after we wrapped uh, of just Gremlins uh, doing stuff. And that that was like almost a month of just Gremlins. Um, The sets were all built up on stilts uh, so that the people, the gremlin puppeteers, could be under the sets, and they they had monitors uh, with the pictures flipped as as if they're looking in a mirror, and uh, it, the entire thing was it, they, there was this little city underneath all the sets, and it made it um, very hot and very unpleasant, uh, and and it was and there were, there were wires everywhere, and to try to keep them out. And this was before CGI when you could take wires out. This was this is like everything we photographed is what you see, and anything that we didn't want to have you see, we had to frame out somehow. Uh, and it was a very time-consuming and arduous. So it was probably the hardest movie I ever did because we were inventing the technology. I mean, it's really a, a, a sort of a giant Muppet movie, but uh, the, the techniques that we were using were all brand new and had never really been tried before on that kind of scale. So it was, uh, it, particularly the bar scene, I, I was shot... Uh, uh, took a long, long time to shoot the bar scene because we had so many gags in it. And when you're shooting a scene like the bar scene or the theater scene uh, and it's days on end, uh, after a certain point, does kind of a sadism kind of set in amongst the, the crew on, like, let's just where well, any since, kind of affinity for, for since there was no since there was never any light at the end of the tunnel, uh, we the, the crew would take out their frustrations on Gizmo uh, yeah. because he was the hardest gremlin to manipulate because he was the smallest, and all those gears and wires and stuff had to be stuffed into his head, and then he had to not look like a bag of bolts when he was finished. And uh, there was a lot of time waiting on him because he would break down. And then we, I remember once the production manager walked in and everybody was asleep because the uh, the guys underneath the the floors were, you know, they had their flashlights out and they were trying to fix Gizmo and the whole rest of the crew had gone asleep. Um, the, the, what what basically happened is we, we started running out of ideas for gags and so we would put up a little note that would say to the crew, ideas for ways to be mean to Gizmo. And they would all write, you know, write down what we could do to Gizmo. And it was like a little torture sheet. And uh, then we would uh, we would shoot various uh, things off of that that list, including you know tying him to a dartboard and throwing darts at him and <laughs> throwing him down the laundry chute, things like that. Well, and um, I gotta, I guess I gotta ask, um, uh, start wrapping this up about the uh, the, the infamous kitchen sequence, which uh, maybe you can kind of explain because I mean. 
I mean, whether it's true or not, I mean, basically, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and Gremlin, they're cited as the two films that basically instigated the PQ-13 rating. Uh-huh. Uh, and so when you were, uh, when the kitchen sequence came up with the microwave and the blender and so forth, uh, at the time, was it, was there a thought that, you know, maybe this is a little, you know, am I going to get in trouble for this? Or what was no. the process of that? No, we, we, we thought of it as a, as a, you know, a, a fantasy. So it, it wasn't something that we figured we were going to get in trouble for. Um, there was a question of how, how gory do you make it? How gooey do you make it? And um, the microwave scene obviously was uh, a highlight of the movie to a lot of people. Um, mm-hmm. But it, even to get that by, we had to make some cuts in the scene. When when uh, when mom stabs one of the gremlins with a knife, there we used to be. We made a gremlin with a lying on the kitchen counter with his hands on the knife, trying to pull it out, and uh, blood coming out. And they they made us cut that. Um, and there were there were a couple of other cuts that we made. When the when the uh, when the teacher uh, gets uh, killed in the um, Science Lab, uh, our original version, we tracked in on his, uh, he wasn't, in, in the released version, he's lying under a desk and there's a, one hypodermic in his rump. But in the version that we shot, uh, we see the entire, his entire face and there's maybe 20 hypodermics <laughs> sticking into his face. And uh, that, that, uh, that disappeared rather early in the, in the, uh, in the game. They got a look at that in the dailies and they said, well, this, we can't do this. this is, we're getting into R-rated territory now. Um, so yeah, yes, it did. Uh, the two pictures together did uh, cause the creation of the PG-13, uh, and a lot of parents complained that they because the movie was advertised with a poster that was the same colors as ET, and it looked kind of like ET two. Um, it had a furry little hand coming out of a, a box, and, and people thought, oh, it's a, it's a cute, cuddly movie. And, of course, it wasn't a cute, cuddly movie. And uh, so parents did complain, but I never heard a kid complain. And, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, there's, uh, Walt Disney didn't exactly go broke by scaring kids. Uh, it, it is a part of um, a part of childhood, to conquering those kind of fears. And um, I think it, 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 particularly now in the in the haze of the distance of 25 years, it, it really is a good kid's movie. But not probably for kids under, like, nine or eight. I, I think it's too scary mm-hmm. for them. And did parents complain more about the kitchen sequence or Phoebe Cates' monologue? Well, parents didn't complain about the monologue. Well, some did, I guess. I mean, uh, but if you're taking a child that young to a movie like this, um, mm-hmm. I don't know that you. If, if I mean, I don't know what what age kids stop believing in Santa Claus, but, but uh, <laughs> it's usually not much past eight or nine. Uh, and uh, anybody who was taking a kid younger than that, I think, it was a, it did say PG for all guidance. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it means you're supposed to go there with your kid. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, and um, I'll ask about the uh, the Gary Goldsman score, um, which is one of his most iconic scores. And what and was yet the... and yet when I first heard him play it on the piano, because in those <laughs> days when you went to the composer's house, he didn't play it on, on synthesizers; he played it on the piano. And when I first heard it, it sounded like circus music to me. Mm-hmm. And I, I really was kind of like, Jerry, are you sure that <laughs> this is what you really want to do? Um, and of course, it was brilliant, and I was a dummy. But uh, I, I, I really did in those days have a difficulty in translating uh, piano music into symphonic scores in my head. I eventually got better at it. Um, but uh, I inherited Jerry on the Twilight Zone. When I, when I came on, he had already been hired. Mm-hmm. And we got along so well that I asked him to do Gremlins, and it led to a, a 10 or 11 film um, collaboration. 
Yeah. Well, and, so, and start to wrap this up. When, when so the movie comes out and it was a huge success. I remember. Uh, I remember that weekend. I, I went to uh, uh, actually, I think a midnight show with my parents. I was only like five years old. Oh. And, and it was, yeah. Oh, and I and I of course I loved it. And um, so, but so. So what did you think about Santa Claus? Well, here's the odd thing. I remember as a kid that sequence. Uh, we used to fast forward just because <laughs> it was all talking. And it was that well, we you know at the time it was that obligatory talking interlude in between the uh, the quote unquote the good stuff. So I used to so we you know we would just fast forward that sequence. Um, so no offense, I hope that doesn't. No, once you make the movie, you know you can't control what's done with it. Right. And so, what was that? What was that like? I mean, that that wave of of, of success. I mean, you'd had success before with the earlier films. No, not I on not not, not on that scale. I mean, this was this was a huge <laughs> success. Um, I, I um, this is the kind of success that you know you can either turn into a real jerk uh, <laughs> or or not. And uh, I mean, you know, they, I was in film festivals in Europe. I mean, all the, all these places I I really didn't frequent. Um, and it was it was very nice. The only mistake I made was that uh, everybody was sending me scripts. Everybody was trying to get me to do things after this picture. Oh, we, who was this guy? We never heard of him. Let's let's offer him stuff. Um, and one of the things I didn't do was Batman, which I uh, was importuned to do after uh, Ivan Reitman had had left the project. Uh, and I woke up when I was I was working on it, and uh, I had a I had a kind of cast and everything. And I woke up and I realized uh, one morning I I just didn't believe in Batman. I didn't believe in Bruce Wayne. I didn't believe in the the double life in the in the house on the hill with Robin. I didn't I just didn't believe it. I be, I believed in the Joker. I liked the Joker. I understood the Joker. I didn't understand Batman. So I went in and I told them I wasn't going to do it, and they looked at me like I had escaped from a mental institution. I mean, it was like, are you kidding? You're not going to do it? Why are you crazy? Um, so I, I was crazy because I, not only didn't I not, did I not do that, I signed on to do a picture called Explorers from a script that wasn't finished for a company that eventually changed ownership in the middle of the movie and decided to release it unfinished. Mm-hmm. So that was like a big, dumb move for me. Right. And now it's 25 years later. Um, it's still an enduring film. Uh, a Blu-ray is going to come out later in the year, I believe. And had a sequel, which is which was Irreverent, which was kind of one of these first uh, postmodern sequels that actually ended up the original. Even um, and I, I just have I'll have one question about the sequel that that I, is probably one of my favorite gags is uh, what was the process of getting Leonard Malton to be in it, uh, knowing that he didn't like the first one. Well, that's why Leonard was yeah. in it. I mean, he uh, Leonard was a friend of mine. I'd known him since. Um, God, long before I came out to California, and um, he didn't like the first movie, and he said so, and he, it's in his book for all to see, two stars, mm-hmm. and um, I said, well, Leonard, uh, you know, I tell you what, I, I have, I'm making this sort of crazy sequel, and um, how would you like to come uh, come on and pan the movie again? <laughs> and he said, why would I want to do that? I said, so, I said, so the grumbles can kill you. And he thought that sounded funny, and so uh, he came in and did it, and it was a very funny scene. And in this era of uh, reimaginings and reboots, uh, has has that even has has Gremlins come up in uh, conversations? Do you know of? of well, I I know that there have been attempts to um, uh, to 
resuscitated as they, in, in the same manner that they tried to resuscitate it for the Grumman's too, which was they hired a lot of writers and they came up with a lot of concepts and they wrote a bunch of scripts and none of them really worked and they eventually had to come back to me because they realized that they, whatever it was about the movie that was working, they didn't get. And uh, in this case, uh, you know, now that it's, what, 25 years from the first picture, um, uh, there's no doubt about it that it's going to be revisited because a title that's that popular can't not be remade. Um, but my guess is that um, it w- it would certainly be a remake rather than a sequel, and it certainly wouldn't include any of the same characters. Um, but uh, or 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 it could be a prequel, which seems to be the current thinking about these things. You go back and you tell how it happened, and maybe you could take the Dick Miller character and you could uh, you know do his World War II experiences with the Gremlins on the airplane or something. Um, but whatever they do is going to be um, it's going to be difficult because our movies were defined by the fact that uh, the techniques that we used were puppetry, and what what the Gremlins could do and couldn't do was based on the reality of what could be achieved and what couldn't be achieved. Now with CGI, you know, you could the entire movie could be CGI, uh, and and there's no rules. So it's if the Gremlins can do anything and go anywhere and be anything, then it it's uh, it makes it very difficult to sort of narrow down a plot. Mm-hmm. Um, nonetheless, I'm I'm convinced that uh, within the next couple of years they'll certainly uh, be revisiting this. Thing. And I'll just ask, you know, whether and not without divulging that either. Um, a, have they come to you? And B, uh, if they haven't, do you have in the back of your head an idea if they do come to you? To uh, I could say no to that because uh, I spent almost my entire time doing Grumman's 2 um, trying to fix it so there wouldn't be a Grumman's 3. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, I, I've succeeded so far. Uh, but I think that the marketplace forces are just too much. I think uh, they, there's, there's, it's almost a uh, derelict duty to the stockholders to not, you know, revisit this thing and try to get some more, squeeze some more money out of it. Well, uh, uh, I'll just, I'll just throw my two cents. The, uh, the World War II Dick Miller prequel. I, uh, I must admit, I'm kind, I kind of like that. Uh, but that well, I read it. On, I read it on a website, so it's, it wasn't my original idea. <laughs> That's it for this episode of the Movie Geeks United Anniversary Series. For more titles in this series, visit our website at moviegeeksunited.net.
Ha 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 ha!